Before we get into our text, let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful that you're faithful to us to send your Holy Spirit to rest heavy upon this place. We thank you for that, that almighty presence that you give to be with us and in us. And we pray that your spirit would continue to move up and down every aisle and in and out of every pew and through the live stream and into the homes where people are watching. And even into the future, if people watch this later, we pray that your spirit would just be tangible, thick, and all over us today. Continue to help us to worship you and just rest in your presence as we open up your word and we read it and we hear it preached. We pray that you will bless our time in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you'll turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon this morning, we are in the book of Joel. As I mentioned last week, we, are, we just began our new sermon series, and we are going through the top three sixteens of the Bible. So last week we began with the first, and that was Genesis 3.16, and this morning we are in the book of Joel. This is Joel chapter 3, and we're going to focus on 16, but for a little bit of context, we're going to back up and read uh, from verse 11 to the end of the chapter. So I ask you'll please stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. This is the book of Joel, chapter 3. We'll start in verse 11, and we'll go to verse 21. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread For the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk. And all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged. For the Lord dwells in Zion. This is God's holy and mighty word for us, His people. 
You may be seated. One of the most undeniable facts of life is the reality of evil. There are some religions and philosophies and belief systems that say evil is an illusion. But this idea crashes on the rocks of proven experience. We all know that evil touches every living thing in our world. I was a philosophy major in college, and in college we took courses on the philosophy of religion, and in those classes we talked about a philosophy of evil. And philosophers like to divide evil into two different kinds. Philosophers distinguish between natural evil and moral evil. Natural evil refers to the pain and suffering that just naturally occurs in our world. Examples would be someone who gets sick, someone who has a disease, someone who trips and breaks an arm, someone who slips and falls, a hurricane, a tornado, a flood, where things are damaged, where lives are lost through accidents. All these sorts of things that just sort of happen, those are the pain and suffering that naturally occur. Nobody does it. It just is stuff that happens in a, in a world that we live in. That's natural evil. Moral evil refers to sin, immoral actions, wickedness. Natural evil is the stuff that just kind of happens on its own Moral evil is committed. Moral evil happens on purpose. It's deliberate. It comes from the will. Evil of both kinds, natural and moral, mar our world and mark our lives. And all of us know someone who is in pain today. Physical, mental, emotional, relational, spiritual. Maybe it's you who's hurting today or someone very close to you. I think of those in our church who are struggling under the weight of both kinds, both sin and suffering. Our passage this morning, our second 316 of the Bible that we're looking at in this series, Joel 316, it rings with hope in the face of life's challenges. Look at 3.16. It says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. This verse tells us two things about God. He is our deliverer, and He is our defender. In the first half of the verse, it says, He roars from Zion. 
And you start getting an idea of where C.S. Lewis got the idea of depicting Jesus as a lion who roars in the Chronicles of Narnia because the Lord is the one who roars forth from Zion and he utters his mighty voice from Jerusalem. And the very heavens tremble and the very earth begins to shake and to quake at the sound of the voice that said, Let there be in the beginning. God's voice brings galaxies and worlds and universes into being. And it holds them there in their courses as they move around our expanding, limitless universe. Billions, not of stars, but of galaxies full of billions of stars, unthinkable vastness. And God flings that into being with His speech. Worlds come into being. So when He speaks, it creates the world. But when He roars, the heavens and the earth tremble and shake. He is our deliverer, the one who speaks the word and delivers us. But He's also, it says in the second half of the verse, our refuge. And our stronghold. The Lord is a refuge to his people. A stronghold to the people of Israel. He's our deliverer and he's our defender. The one who rescues and the one who protects. This verse and this concept of deliverer and defender. Is central to this small prophetic book of Joel. God defends His people and delivers His people both from natural evil and from moral evil throughout the book. And sort of the whole flow of the book hinges on this 316, which is something of a climax to the whole book. So as we look at Joel's prophecy, and we focus on this key verse and the idea of this key verse, God as deliverer and defender in 316, We not only see God's redemptive plans for the world in this prophecy, but we also learn how God is our deliverer and our defender from the natural evil and from the moral evil that we face in our own lives. So to put things in context, let's back up and let's see 316... And indeed, the whole chapter in the context of the book. Chapter 3 of Joel is a prophecy of the great war at the end of history, the end of days. When the nations are defeated, the people of God are fully rescued and restored. The age of peace and eternal prosperity is ushered in. This is how the book ends. But it is not what the book is about. As the first two chapters show, the book is about the time when an enormous, devastating swarm of locusts swept across the land and nearly destroyed the whole nation. That is the occasion of the book. When you study a book of the Bible, one of the questions you want to know about the background of that Bible, about the, or that book, the historical context is, what's the occasion that prompted the author to even start writing? What gave the author the idea? Now, the author's inspired, so you could say God tapped him on the shoulder and said, hey, Joel, I've got something for you to write down. 
But that's generally not how it works. Normally, something is happening in the author's life, in the audience's life, that occasions the book, that causes and prompts the author to to write it down. So what happened in Israel that made Joel write this prophecy under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? And it was the invasion of a devastating, historic swarm of locusts, a plague that swept across the land. If we back up to chapter 1, he describes this in the very beginning. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, he says in verse Two, hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. All these species of locusts that have swept through. And he says in verse 5, Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all of you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, for it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off the bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Skipping ahead, verse 11, Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. So this is historic proportions, devastating all of the trees, crops, sweeping across the fields, across the hillsides, consuming everything in its path. And he says it's like a big army. He compares it to a nation. Joel personifies this locust plague as a great army marching against Israel and devouring the land with scorched earth tactics. Chapter 2, he describes it again this way. In verse 3, fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. This amazing assault from these locusts. And he continues to describe them as as an invading, conquering army in chapter 2, verse 7. Like warriors they charge. Like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their path. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Um, Amazing. It's so thick that as it swarms through, it blots out the sun. So the people are left in the shade as these things devour the land. That's what occasions this book. 
this devastating thing that sweeps across Israel. And Joel sees this event prophetically as a sign, a preview, a parable about the war that is coming when the day of the Lord arrives. And that's where this language of, and the stars will not give their light, and the sun and the moon will be blackened out. It's because this locust plague sweeps over the land and covers it with darkness. And he says, with the eyes of faith, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as a prophet, and he sees this happening, and he says, this is a preview. This is a plague parable about what's coming one day when the day of the Lord finally arrives. As he says in chapter 1, verse 15, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, as a, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Or chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. That's what the people are facing. And Joel sees this plague as a parable about the great final battle that's coming at the end. And in response to this... Under Joel's ministry, the people cry out to God, and God both defends and delivers the nation from the plague. In Joel chapter 2, verse, beginning in verse 18, he says, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field. For the pastures of the wilderness are green, the tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, verse 23, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. And he goes on from there to describe how everything is going to flourish greater than it ever did before once the Lord gets rid of the invading locust swarm and he restores the fortunes of his people. As they cry out to him, he defends them through the plague, keeps them safe, doesn't let the nation perish, holds on to them, and at the end he delivers them finally. This is what the book of Joel is occasioned by, and this is what the book of Joel is about. The locust plague is an example of natural evil. The locusts don't have a will. They're not doing anything deliberately. They're not sinning 
They're just doing what they naturally do anyways. They're locusts. They fly, they buzz, they eat, they swarm. This is natural evil. And Joel helps us learn an important lesson about the natural evil that you and I face. First, the natural is a parable of the spiritual. The natural is a parable of the spiritual. In Joel's case, it's just, it's just locusts. I mean, it's an extraordinary event, but they're just bugs doing what bugs do, swarming, flying, buzzing, eating, moving on. But Joel looks at this and he says, there's something we can learn about God from this. There's something we can learn about God's plans and purposes from this. There's something that we can look at and see on the spiritual dimension of reality by looking at this natural thing that's happening. An example of this is in 2 Kings when in the days of King Josiah, the book of the law, like the books of Moses, have been lost. You can't imagine this. They lost the Bible in the temple. Someone stuck it in a drawer, put it, and, and, it, and then cluttered it up. It was in the junk drawer, and they lost the Bible. And in those days, it says that all these idols were ever these high places, they're called, places where you can go and worship a false god. And there were all these high places, and idolatry was everywhere. And Josiah was there to clean it up in the first big reformation that happened in, in, the, in Israel in the Old Testament. And the text goes out of its way to say that in those days, the temple was falling into disrepair. I mean, ask a trustee. It's hard to maintain this building. It's an old building. There's a lot of stuff that's got to be done to keep an old building running. This thing was way older than this building. And it was uniquely deteriorating. Things were falling apart. Things were breaking. And the the thing was moldering and starting to just kind of break down. And people are like, what's going on here? And, And the prophets come along and say, Josiah, it's a parable, dummy. The natural is a parable of the spiritual. The worship of the people is deteriorating because they're worshiping idols even inside the temple. And... The temple itself is starting to disintegrate as a picture of what's happening spiritually to the people. Their worship is deteriorating. It's rotting. It's falling apart. So what happened to the temple was a parable of what was happening spiritually to the people. The natural is a parable of the spiritual. And what that means is we can look at the pain and the suffering that we encounter and that we experience and we can ask questions of God. And not the normal questions, at least not only the normal questions. Why is this happening? What are you doing? What are you up to, God? You see the psalmists wrestling with God all the time. God, how long are you going to let me go through this? What are you up to, God? Or like Job sitting in his, sitting in his own filth undergoing horrendous suffering and he's, he's complaining and he's questioning and he's saying, God, what is going on here? So we see this in the Bible, this struggle. But once we get past those sorts of questions, we can begin to say, God, what are you trying to show me? What are you trying to teach me? And what do these struggles that I'm experiencing teach me about something that you are up to on a larger scale? The locusts were something that was happening in the moment in Israel. But Joel saw it as a parable of what's happening at the end of days. 
It's a picture of what's going to happen in the final battle. And so one thing you can do, and this doesn't make the pain go away, but one thing you can do is say, God, what are you trying to teach me and show me through these things? And what does this remind me of in, in terms of your big plan for your world? And that helps you to remember that God has built in meaning and purpose into all the pain you experience. And that's the second lesson here that Joel teaches. Not just that the natural is a parable of the spiritual, but that your pain is in God's hands. This is what Joel says in chapter 2, verse 11. Speaking about this, this locust army, it says, The Lord utters His voice before His army. For His camp is exceedingly great. He who executes His word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Joel recognizes that God is sovereign over bugs. God is sovereign over locusts. And it's as though God is the one who sent the army of locusts to sweep across the, the land because God is sovereign. And rather than being a cause for despair, this gave the people great hope because it reminded them that my pain and my suffering is not somehow outside of God's control. Because think about the alternatives if God were 100% against the pain that you're going through, not one ounce of his being wants it to happen, and he's going to do everything he can to stop it, and it still happens? Who's winning? Who's running the world? I don't want this evil to happen. Oops. That's the alternative, is a God who just can't help it that you're hurting. Who wishes he, you weren't and could try his very best to get it to stop, but he can't quite pull it off. I remember one time in church, in the church I grew up in many years ago, a lady stood up and was giving a, a testimony, and she was talking about the struggles that she was going through and how God was teaching her things through the, the hardship she was facing. And someone else, in the middle of the service, while she's giving her testimony, stands up and says, no, that's completely wrong. God, didn't, God has nothing to do with the hardship you're going through. He doesn't want you to have the hardship. He doesn't want you to face it. He's doing everything he can to try and stop it. He, he has nothing to do with that. He's not teaching you anything. It, it's, just, it's just random pain, and you've got to trust him to get through it. But he's not, it's not in his hands. And I, and I remember thinking, he's trying to be helpful to this lady. He really meant this not as a correction to her theology, but as a, to try and help her be like, no, God wouldn't do that to you. But, but what he did was he took hope out of her hands. Because we serve a God who says in Romans eight twenty eight, I will work all things together for your good. But how could God make that promise unless all things are in his hands? He can't make promises like that if he's not able to, to make good, to keep that kind of promise. And he needs all power to do that. Your pain is actually in God's hands, and that means it's not gratuitous and pointless and purposeless and meaningless, and you live in a universe that's just random, and there's no point to your suffering, and you suffer, 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 and die, and that's it. 
There's just no hope at all in that message. And the Bible doesn't teach that message. The Bible says because God is sovereign over all the things we face, it doesn't make them not be bad. It doesn't make pain not painful. It doesn't make, doesn't make tragedy not tragic. It doesn't make bad things into good things. But it does say that I'm using those bad things to lead you to an ultimate good that I have for you. A good you might not have been able to get to had you not gone the path that I've sent you. Because God is sovereign, he's able to defend you in the middle of it. He's able to teach you in the middle of it. He's able to humble and sanctify and do a 10,000 other things that, will, that we won't know until glory. <laughs> and he's able ultimately to deliver you out of it and to promise you that all things are actually working together for your good. This is what Joel helps us to see. To see a God who is sovereign and good even in the midst of pain. Joel led the people to cry out to God to take refuge in him. And Joel, Joel's directions for seeking the Lord as a refuge and a stronghold in 316 are very instructive for how you should cry out to God in your pain. If the natural is a parable for the spiritual, and if our pain is ultimately in God's hands for his holy and good purposes, which means he's able to defend and deliver in and through whatever we face, then in light of that, there are some things we can learn from Joel about how we are to take refuge in God. Because God doesn't always just jump in and deliver us from the first sign of trouble. He's our defender and deliverer, but he doesn't just automatically deliver. Sometimes he defends us through it, and he carries us through it, rather than just taking it away. So as he's carrying us through, how do we take refuge in him? How do we seek him as our stronghold? Well, Joel gives us a couple of things we can do. First of all, Joel tells the people that they should mourn for the struggles that they're facing. I'm glad that's in the Bible. I'm glad the Bible isn't telling us that we have to be the typical caricature of a Stoic, someone who absolutely is not allowed to acknowledge how much things hurt and not allowed to shed a tear and not allowed to cry, not allowed to feel the full force of pain. But we just grit our teeth and we bear up under it and we... Forge ahead. That's not what Joel told the people to do. In chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, when Joel said, as the vine is drying up, as the fields are drying up, again, the natural is a parable for the spiritual. Just as the vines in the fields were drying up, so the gladness of God's people were drying up. And he says in verse 13, put on sackcloth and lament O priests, wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. He told the priests, and he tells us, you are allowed to let yourself feel the full force of the things that hurt us. You're allowed to acknowledge them, you're allowed to respond to them. You're allowed 
to let yourself feel the weakness that comes from it. The first thing to do is not to pretend it doesn't hurt as much or it's not as bad, but just let it be what it is. No sugarcoating, no trying to save face. Just let it hurt and mourn. Allow yourself to feel it. Allow yourself to feel it. You remember the story of St. Augustine in his book, The Confessions, the first autobiography of history, at least the first Christian one. And St. Augustine, when his beloved, dearly beloved mother, Monica, dies, St. Monica, she's on her deathbed, she's passed away, and he's standing there with a couple other guys in the room, and he just, and he just talks about how he strained as hard as he possibly could not to cry. Because he's like, I, can't, I cannot shed a tear. I cannot show weakness and vulnerability. And as he felt the tears beginning to well up, he ran out of the room, and he went and sobbed a little bit, and then he, as quick as he could, dried it up, dried his eyes, and then got back in there. Because Augustine believed that's weak. You can't do that. He shouldn't do that. Augustine believed that somebody's got to... Somebody's got to, can't, someone has to be strong and keep it together because you've got other people you're trying to, to keep it together for. And sometimes that's true. You can't afford to break down because too many people depend on you. And there's something to be said for that. But at some point, let yourself feel the pain and just cry out to God with it and just let it be real. Just let yourself go there. But don't stay there. Number two, this one is interesting. Number two, Joel says to the people of Israel, to seek refuge in God as your defender in the midst of pain, it's time to repent. It's time to repent. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, he tells them, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. In the Bible, when, when pain and suffering and, and affliction and difficulty and turmoil comes upon the people, they don't respond maybe the way you would think they would. Their first response is to hit their face and repent. Pain tells them it's time to repent. And it's because the natural is a parable of the spiritual. Because pain is a reminder of the fall. Pain is a reminder that we live in a broken and sinful world. Pain is a reminder that it's because of my sin and the sin of everybody else, all the way back to Adam and Eve, that we live in this kind of world. And sin does bring these afflictions upon us. Now, here you have to be really careful because I'm not saying that every time you experience pain or suffering, it's because you're being punished because of a specific sin you committed. So don't, don't think that. It could be, but it's not necessarily. Look at Job. Or the blind man in John 9. The disciples say, Jesus, why was this man born blind? Because of his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus says, neither. He's not blind because of anybody's specific sin. He's not blind because he's being punished. Jesus says he was born blind for the glory of God. Amazing. So don't think that, okay, I'm suffering. What specific sin did I do to deserve this? That's not the message. The message is, 
We are in a fallen world because of sin. And so when pain comes, it's a reminder for us to fall on our faces and to cry out to God and repent of any and all sin and just say, Lord, we're not worthy of your defense. We're not worthy of your protection. Condemnation and hell is all we deserve, but your mercy is so grand and so great. You call out to God and you take refuge in him by returning to him with true faith and repentance. And the last thing Joel says to do is to pray and stay connected to the church. Man, this is a big one. To pray and stay connected to the church. In Joel 1.14, he says, Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Or in chapter 2, he says the same thing. To consecrate a fast, to gather the assembly, and to pray. When you're suffering, don't suffer by yourself. Run to your fellow brothers and sisters. Cling to your fellow Christians. You have a family that loves you. You have a church that cares for you. Stay connected. Don't isolate. And be constant and steady and faithful in prayer. And that's how we seek refuge in God. We pray for that that daily refreshing strength and courage to take another step, to wake up another morning and face it one more time knowing that he is defending us through it faithfully, that he's teaching us and he's working on us and he's working in the lives of the people we're caring for. Or if it's me who's hurting and me who's suffering, God's working on me in special and unique ways, that he has good and holy purposes for this, that he's keeping me through it and ultimately the deliverance, the final ultimate deliverance will come. God gives us strength and courage to endure all of our losses, and all of our crosses. And that brings us to the final point today. In chapter 3, Joel is describing the last days and the final battle before the end. In chapter 2, verse 23, there's a very interesting translation issue. Chapter 2, verse 23, there's a line that says, He has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. That line, the early rain for your vindication, can equally be translated, and some translations do this, it can be translated, He has given you the teacher of righteousness. And the teacher of righteousness has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the later rain as before. And therefore the the threshing floor shall be full of grain and the vats shall overflow with wine and the restoration shall happen. And I think that's probably the better way to go. The teacher of righteousness has been sent by God to deliver the people. Now, in Joel's day, that's the prophet Joel. He's the one who comes. He's the one who prophesies and teaches. And the people turn to God, and they are delivered. The locusts are cast out. And in the last days, God will send a teacher of righteousness who will fulfill the ultimate goal of this prophecy to deliver God's people fully and finally at the last battle. And you can see this because just after this section of saying that he's going to send this teacher, 
you get verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Where does that repeat it in the Bible? Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. The book of Acts says that prophecy was fulfilled at Pentecost. That specific piece of the prophecy was fulfilled at Pentecost. And so God is going to send the deliverer, Christ, who accomplishes our deliverance from sin. And after those days, he pours out his spirit. So now we have the New Testament of the sacrifice and resurrection of Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's the first fulfillment of this prophecy. And at the end of days in chapter 3... The Lord will roar from Zion one more time. And this time it's to finish what he started. The book of Hebrews says the first time he came to save us from sin, the second time he's coming to save those who are looking for him to vanquish our enemies and fulfill all the remaining promises and prophecies. So in 3.16, the Lord who's roaring from Zion at that last battle, on that last day, is that revelation warrior riding the horse, coming with all the hosts of heaven, the legions of God's angelic armies, leading us forward and conquering and defeating all these nations where God sits in judgment upon them and ultimately rescues us and brings in at the second coming the final judgment, the resurrection, and the eternal state in a new heavens and a new earth. So what started as a little prophecy in Joel with some locusts has turned into Christ and the Spirit, which turns into Christ conquering at the end of days and winning the final battle. And that too should be a sign of hope, a parable of hope for you in the middle of pain. Because Jesus is the ultimate defender and deliverer for you. And he will be the one to defend and deliver you through your final battle as well your final battle with pain and suffering and evil and the last enemy, death. A few weeks ago, I did a funeral and we had a graveside service. And at the graveside, I said, the Bible uses sleep as a euphemism for death. Paul talks about those who are asleep in Christ. He doesn't say they're dead. He says they're asleep. And that's because one day, Christ will return and wake those people up. That death is not the end, it's sleep. And Christ is the one who will raise his people from their graves. Sleeping people wake up. And I said, for you, every time... You go to sleep at night and their alarm goes off and it's like, oh, alarm, another day, here we go. Let that, let the natural be a parable for the spiritual. That when your alarm goes off and you wake up, it's a little parable of what you're going to do from your tomb one day. You're not laying down in that casket forever. You're laying down and you will come out. If Jesus left his grave behind him, So will I. 
and so will you. And the one who sustains us through the pain and agony of life is the one who is standing there to greet you at the moment of death. So that what you see is not death. What you see is the one who is the resurrection and the life. To welcome you into the place where you will be defended in that stronghold of heaven until the day comes when he roars from Zion and he doesn't just say, Lazarus, come out. He says, your name, Christian, come out. And we will stand with him victorious at the final battle. You're guaranteed victory because you have a mighty God who roars forth and fights for you. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have given us the truth of your word to sustain us, to teach us, to tell us how to face this life and how to go through the suffering and sorrows we face. And I pray that you would sustain us with the hope that comes from your word, that we would cling to Jesus and trust in him, that we would learn all the lessons you have for us, that we would have your courage and strength to endure another day. And we pray that ultimately you would hasten the victory and send your son back to us to wrap it up, to bring in the end, to deliver us fully and finally. We long for that day when the final battle is won. Sustain us, we pray. Protect us and keep us with hope and confidence that that day is coming. And may we endure to the end. And may we at last, all sorrows gone, all heaven's joys remain. Let us meet together at the end. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.